It's been 15 years since 12-year-old Jalik Rainwalker vanished. His disappearance from rural upstate New York was ruled a probable child homicide. But no one has ever been charged, and his body has never been found. This is Rainwalker, the Lost Boy. I'm Jessica Marshall. And I'm Wendy Lepertor. In this podcast from the Times Union, we'll take a deep dive into this mystery, the case of a missing child that has unsettled New York's capital region and beyond for more than a decade. Episode 3, A Boy's Life. Before we begin, a word of caution. The story we are about to tell involves situations that may be very disturbing to some listeners. So please take care as you listen. Previously on Rainwalker, the Lost Boy. Jalik Rainwalker allegedly disappeared from the small upstate village of Greenwich, New York. Fifteen years later, Greenwich is still haunted. I have righteous rage in a very chill way that this has happened in Greenwich and it seems to have stalled. We all just wanted to bring Jalik home because Collectively, as a village, we all felt that loss and sadness and uh, frustration. It's always disturbed me that Jalik was never found. No one was ever brought to justice if, you know, he was killed. Andrews was about 11 when she went to theater camp in southern Vermont. It was 2006. There was singing, dancing, and we put on a, a performance, a play for all the family members and all the band and everybody that attended the camp. Every year we did um, some sort of musical. So a lot of singing, dancing, acting, teamwork, bonding, things like that. Abby's 27 now. She lives in Bennington, Vermont. Not too far from where the camp was, actually. It was a three-week summer program held on the campus of the former Southern Vermont College. She remembers loving every minute of it. One year she was there, they put on a performance of Susical the Musical. She got the starring role. I was Jojo, the little boy, even though I'm a girl. I played a little boy, and um, because I was one of the lead roles, I interacted with everybody on the set. 
One of the kids on set she remembers most was a member of the ensemble, a boy about her age. Abby Andrews says she was drawn to this boy. He was magnetic. Everyone called him Jay. The first thing I remember about Jay was his eyes, and I had never seen, I mean, I live in a rural, small town in Vermont, and I had never seen a boy that looked like him before. Um, and I had a little bit of a crush on him. I won't lie. I, I know that sounds strange and, and odd, but I mean, no. I had crushes on a lot of little boys growing up, and he definitely yeah. was one of them um, just because he was so beautiful. Abby says she and Jay spent a lot of time together during the camp. They both attended two years in a row. And what, would you say he had a lot of talent? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He loved the, he was very excitable. And he definitely loved the aspect of the dancing and the singing. And um, yeah, I mean, I think he was, he was great at it because he had so much confidence in himself. Abby wanted to hang out with Jay outside of camp. But Jay said he didn't have any internet, so they couldn't really keep in touch. My parents definitely had met his parents somewhere along those lines, and um, it was just a hard no about ever having a relationship with Jalik outside of camp. Was so, it his parents, or...? I don't know. I, I can't speak on that. I, I don't know. Um, I just think it would have been hard to have a play date with him. The November after their second summer at theater camp, Jay, whose full name was Jalik, went missing. So how did you find out that he went missing? I saw it everywhere. I mean, I remember hearing it from my parents. I saw the billboard in New York. There was posters, flyers all around Bennington. Teachers were talking about it. Um, it was everywhere. How were you feeling when you found that out? I was sad. Um, I was super sad, but I was hopeful that he was going to come back. I mean, I was young. And throughout the years, I've, I'm 27 years old now, he would be my age. Um, I just have a really sad gut feeling that he's not coming home ever. And it's sad. It, it's very sad. Abby Andrews knew Jalik Rainwalker as a confident boy who enjoyed theater. But under the surface, his life was very, very complicated, and in many ways, tragic. The J that Abby Andrews knew was born Jalik Llewellyn Franklin Boyd on August 2nd, 1995. He came into this world suffering from fetal alcohol syndrome and a crack addiction. His birth mother is black. His birth father is not. He was taken from his mother almost immediately. He was placed in foster care. During the next seven years, he would live with six foster families. Well, Jalik was full. I mean, he had so much charm. He was a kid that just knew all the right things to say. And I think that, again, was a survival sort of mode where he could charm someone um, just so he could survive. Joy Purdy took him in as a foster when he was two. She lived in Colony at the time, a suburb of Albany, 
She was a single mom with two biological children. Her son was just a year or two older than Jalik. She says they got along really well. Jalik would do funny things. My social worker would come over and he'd be out in the pool or whatever. And, you know, then they'd both get out of the pool and go pee in the yard. And I'd be, oh, my God, like, (laughs) do you really have to do this now? (laughs) But luckily, I had a really good social worker. He's like, they're just being boys. Don't worry. (laughs) Joy Purdy had wanted to be a foster parent for as long as she could remember. She'd been raised on stories of her own mother's upbringing in an orphanage. They inspired her. Jalik was her first and only foster child. I have uh, two biological um, children that are biracial, so I um, requested to um, be placed with a biracial child and a child from, you know, the age of maybe one to 12. And Jalik um, just, you know, fit, fit the criteria that I requested. Joy picked him up at another foster parent's house on Halloween night in 1997. She was his fourth foster home. On Jalik's first night with the family, Joy and her children spent a few hours with him at their house. They started getting to know each other. Then they took him out trick-or-treating with another family in their suburban neighborhood. Jalik was drawn to the mother of that family, a woman he'd never met. Joy says he clung to her, called her mommy. So it was kind of sad because, and the other mother felt very awkward about it because he kept calling her mommy, going to her. But I told her, I said, you know, he's been through a lot. I'm not upset about it. I'm just glad he feels comfortable with anyone, you know. Jalik had begun to show signs of a behavioral condition called reactive attachment disorder. Children diagnosed with this have trouble forming attachments to caregivers. Even a few weeks after that, he he would go up to pretty much anyone and quickly attach to them because he just did not know who he belonged to. We'd go to church and everybody at church thought he was such an awesome kid because he would just go sit in their laps and, you know, sit down with them and, you know, but it was really not that he was such an extrovert. It was that he just didn't know who he belonged to. So it was sad. Uh, Reactive attachment disorder is, is a disruption in the connectedness or the bonding between a baby and a primary caregiver. Mary McGowan is the executive director of ATTACH, a nonprofit organization that provides support and training for parents and caregivers of children diagnosed with reactive attachment disorder. She has raised children with the condition herself. She was not familiar with Jalik's case before talking to us, but she says it's not unusual to see this in a child who's been in the foster system a long time. A child, when they cry, an infant, when they cry, they have a need. And if there is blatant overt abuse or neglect going on, that those needs may not get met. And sometimes it's just a lack of affection or responsiveness from a caregiver who themselves perhaps uh, never was able to attach when they were little. 
That, McGowan says, can actually cause changes in the frontal cortex of the brain. That's the part that helps us regulate our emotions, our behaviors, our language. Basically, it's our executive functioning center. All of the things that we need to stay calm, to not explode, to have filters in our life, if that makes sense. You know, so when you when you have children and youth that don't have those or have them sometimes when they're calm, but as soon as something triggers them, they instantly move out of that higher brain and into, you know, the the slang, the reptile or caveman brain where it's fight, flight, or freeze. So they're in this survival mode, and then they literally are not able to access that part of their brain. So it's not like they're stubborn, they don't want to listen, which is, this is why the education piece is so vital. McGowan says triggering that reflex leaves kids with this condition in a frazzled state of emotional dysregulation. This is where you might see them rage. This is where you see um, people harming others when they're jealous or when, you know, road rage. All these things uh, can come back to this anger and this um, signs of, you know, having early trauma and not knowing how to deal with their feelings and emotions. McGowan was careful to say here that this type of brain response does not always manifest itself in violence. For many attachment-disordered people, the threat of damage is more internal. So it it formulates in in a whole lot of ways social withdrawal from social situations, depression, isolation, Uh, not having close or intimate relationships with anyone, family or anyone. Our children and youth that um, have these issues, they tend to do better with strangers than with people they know because they haven't built that relationship and so they're not afraid of being abandoned. We had our daughter for four years before we adopted her, before we felt comfortable adopting her. Elaine Person, the foster mom who watched Jalik for six days before he disappeared, knows something about reactive attachment disorder. Actually, she knows a lot about it. And even then, it was after us being in therapy for three years, group therapy, um, with an attachment disorder parent support group. Elaine said it wasn't easy to parent a child with reactive attachment disorder. Her daughter would appear well-behaved and sweet to strangers. But at home, she'd go into rages that would last for hours. Elaine says it required a lot of patience, training, and love. Kelly was in therapy for one year. We were in therapy for three years just to be able to parent her, learning about how to let things go, how to choose your battles, and just understanding what these kids have gone through and what they're going through now. Mary McGowan has a very similar account of raising her son after his adoption. With the right consistent treatment, um, is this something that can resolve? Is there, like, I don't want to say a cure, but like, can the brain be uh, retrained? Yes, that is the beauty of this. We call it neuroplasticity, which is a fancy word that just means the brain is placid or malleable. So the brain can change. Is it easy? No. Is it resistant to change? Absolutely it is. This is a lifelong process. 
McGowan remembers a moment when she realized the hard work of parenting a child with this disorder began to pay off. I remember my youngest son when he would um, be riding his bike or running and he would fall and scrape his knees. He instantly went into a rage, which is just a classic result because that's the only feeling they know is anger. They don't know hurt. They don't know how to be comforted. But one day, McGowan remembers, her son fell and scraped his knee. He didn't get angry. He started crying. He turned to her for help. Together, they bandaged up his knee. Now that seems so minor, but that was huge. That is attachment working. That is a child who didn't feel loved or wanted turning and reaching to an adult because you've started to build that trust, that cornerstone and foundation of connection and relationship. We spend way too much time like, you know, telling kids what to do and do this and don't do that. Laugh with them, play with them, have fun, you know, get their curiosity going, build that relationship, sing songs, whatever it is, because that is what is going to pull through where they're going to start seeing you as someone that really does care about them, you know, and, and that will go a long way as the relationship develops and as they begin to just peek out and perhaps see if they could trust another human being. Jalik lived with Joy Purdy and her children for about 18 months. She says she sent him to a private pre-K program where he had speech therapy. He had trouble pronouncing his R's and his W's. She says he was a calm child, though. She never observed angry or violent outbursts, and he never harmed or threatened other children. But one day when Jalik was nearing four, Joy had to give him up. She says the reason was that her ex-husband suddenly stopped paying child support. And here I was with three children, no child support, all of the sudden. And his school I had him in was very expensive. It was a special school to help him with the challenges he had. So it was a very difficult decision. What kind of home life would you say Jalik probably needed? I think one, you know, just with um, stability mostly, where he would know where he belonged. That was the most important. Um, Jalik didn't need anything special. He was always a kid that appreciated what he had. He was never selfish, um, but he needed someone there, you know, on a consistent basis. One of Joy's favorite memories of Jalik was from a Thanksgiving they spent together. You know, lots of family do this. They ask at the table, what are you thankful for? You know, and my kids, they would say something like a favorite toy or something like that. And Jalik would always say something very common, like, I'm thankful for the table we're eating <laughs> on. Or, you know, so he just needed the basic things. He was not a spoiled child. And he knew that things could disappear, even at a young age. We'll be right back.
If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back to Rainwalker, the Lost Boy. At age four, Jalik L. Boyd found himself back at Parsons Children and Family Center. This organization comes up a lot in Jalik's story. It's directly responsible for his foster care placement and subsequent adoption by Stephen Kerr and Jocelyn McDonald. Today, Parsons has been absorbed into parent company Northern Rivers, but it's still a privately run agency that places kids in foster care and provides ongoing support for them as needed. We reached out to Kim Cummins at Northern Rivers. She's the chief officer of residential and foster care services there. Unsurprisingly, she wouldn't discuss the particulars of Jalik's case. I'm not allowed to, I can't because, yeah, I mean, there's privacy laws, so I can't confirm or deny anyone that we have personally worked with. But she gave us an overview of how the system works. How does a child end up in the foster care system? So kids end up in the foster care system because um, someone either in the community, schools, um, parents, other family members, someone has identified that there is a risk or abuse or neglect happening. People would then uh, report that to um, the the child abuse, uh, they would call the number for the child abuse line, and then local counties would go and investigate um, in their own county to see if they found abuse or neglect. And if they found that the youth or the child was in imminent danger or at risk, they would then remove them. A case like Jalik's is handled in a slightly different way. Sometimes, uh, you know, a baby will end up in foster care as well uh, from the hospital, say. Yeah, a baby could end up in a hospital. So if a parent had two previous children who are in foster care, the baby may come into foster care because there are already known parenting or safety issues with that parent. And or if a child is born and say um, is found positive for drugs, um, they would probably have them enter the foster care system while trying to figure out um, if it's safe for them to be with their parent at that time. Once removed from their birth parent or parents, there are several paths for a child in New York. Typically, the county will seek out a suitable family member first. If that doesn't pan out, they can either try a county-certified foster home or call a private agency like Parsons. Jalik's case went to Parsons. After Jalik left Joy Purdy's care, he went to live with a couple in the Albany suburb of Clifton Park. Three years later, he was back at Parsons again. That couple told the Times Union a few weeks after Jalik went missing in 2007 that his reactive attachment disorder was too much for them to handle. He'd become prone to angry outbursts, they said. He would smash his head against the wall. They feared for their two biological children. The foster father told the Times Union, quote, he wanted you to feel angry because that is how he felt, unquote. We made several attempts to reach that foster family 14 years later for more detail. They all went unanswered. 
It was that couple, however, who provided one of the only known videos we could find of Jalik to a documentary series called Find Our Missing that aired in 2012. You can actually hear his voice. In 2000, Jalik met his final foster parents, a couple from rural Washington County, Stephen Kerr and Jocelyn McDonald. At the time, they lived in a rented four-bedroom house in Salem, New York. They had three biological children. They took in Jalik and another girl around his age. Both were designated therapeutic cases, as in they both had special needs of some kind, and for care of those children, foster parents are paid a larger monthly stipend. At the time, Kerr and McDonald were making a modest living as weavers, selling their wares at farmers markets and craft fairs around the region. They were paid $3,000 per month per foster child, according to Elaine Person, the foster mom who watched Jalik the week before he disappeared. Elaine was serving on the Parsons Board of Directors at the time Jalik went to live in Washington County. She says that money was to be used specifically for his care. Stephen Kerr and Jocelyn McDonald officially adopted Jalik L. Boyd in 2003. He then became Jalik Rainwalker. Four years later, he disappeared. Yeah, I mean, I think Jalik was failed in a lot of ways um, by a lot of people. It's not just one person's fault. Joy Purdy counts herself among those to blame for what happened to Jalik. So how did you feel when you heard that he went missing? I was devastated. Um, I was having dinner with some friends. We were at a restaurant and one of the people mentioned something. They happened to be a social worker and they mentioned what they thought had might have happened and said the name Jalik and I probably had something going on in my life where I, I've always worked a lot of jobs <laughs> so I did not see the news and she said the name and I'm, I just lost it. Abby Andrews now makes a living as a dental assistant in southwestern Vermont. Just before we ended our interview with her, she remembered one more thing about theater camp. The kids had just finished their performance of Susical the Musical. It was the capstone at the end of the three weeks of theater camp. It was a huge deal. All the parents came out to see it. After the performance, I mean, everybody came to this play at the end of the three weeks. I just remember all the parents were super happy at the end and they're congratulating their children and they're hugging them and telling them what a great job they did. All the parents, that is, except Jalik's. And I do remember seeing his dad with this straight face, no emotion at all, no a joy at all. And I, I thought that was very sad. I Even at a young age, I remember thinking that was weird. It's worth pausing here once again to note that this is solely an impression of Stephen Kerr. 
the only person of interest in Jalik's disappearance ever identified by law enforcement, taken in a moment. Someone who appears cold or emotionless at their child's performance might be harboring barely suppressed rage or resentment, but they also might simply be suffering from a stomach bug or slept poorly the night before. The only real fact that we have to go on at this point is that Stephen Kerr has never been charged with a crime related to Jalik. Abby showed us a video from their performance of Susical the Musical. It's shaky and a bit hard to see. It wasn't professional video, it was taken by someone in the audience. The back of an audience member's head obscures most of it. But there's this moment, midway through, when suddenly that head moves aside, and there's Jalik, center stage. Oh my god, he's right there. Holy crap, he's right there! It's the only other video we were able to find of him. He's wearing what looks like a camouflage fishing vest. He's dancing and bopping to the big finale number. At one point, he emphatically puts his hand on his chest and lifts his face toward the ceiling, belting out the lyrics. You can't hear him amid the chorus of voices, but you can feel the energy of his performance. He was smiling. On the next episode of Rainwalker, The Lost Boy, we'll explore Jalik's life in rural upstate New York. He uh, immediately said, I don't know why anyone cares what I'm wearing. I live in a tent, Mrs. Hudson. When I went up to the door, uh, Jalik was thrashing around and yelling. He was pissed. He was standing up and he was throwing his arms back and forth and yelling that he didn't want to do the work. As soon as he saw me, he changed. Rain Walker, The Lost Boy, is a Times Union podcast. This series was produced and edited by Wendy Libertor and myself, Jessica Marshall. We had help from Lauren Stanforth, Susan Mahalik, Lori Todd, Erica Smith, Tom Crocker, Jeff Shearer, and Casey Seiler. Special thanks to Dan Higgins. Archival report footage came from local stations Albany's CBS 6, News Channel 13, and News 10, and from Find Our Missing. Our theme song is As You Make the Bed by Amos Noah.